Aloha. This is Catherine Cruz. Thanks for joining us here on The Conversation, Hawaii Talks. It's Thursday, February 29th. We take a closer look at the Mauna Kea Stewardship Oversight Authority as it has selected a former tourism executive as its new director. We learn about a new treatment for certain blood cancers now available here in Honolulu. And on this last day of Hawaiian Language Month, we hanaho our interview with Leilani Poliahu, the voice of the Hawaiian Word of the Day. And we introduce you to a young podcaster who turned 10 this month, double digits. She's wondering what she will be when she grows up. Remember those days? The Mauna Kea Stewardship and Oversight Authority decides today on whether to hire John DeFries, the former head of the Hawaii Tourism Authority, as its new director. If approved, DeFries will help guide the authority through a critical five-year transition period as it takes over management of Mauna Kea. HPR reporter Kuve Hirishi joins us with more. Good morning. Good morning. The authority has been sitting on this news for about a month now. John DeFries, former president and CEO of the Hawaii Tourism Authority, was chosen from a pool of nine candidates to be the new executive director of this Mauna Kea Stewardship and Oversight Authority. The oversight body is about halfway through year three of its five-year transition period to take over management of Mauna Kea from the University of Hawaii. Uh, The authority announced the position last September. A committee made up of uh, three authority members sort of whittled down that list to four finalists, all of whom were uh, or are Native Hawaiian, which was interesting. And last month, the body authorized its chairman to negotiate with DeFries. So we spoke to John Komeji, chair of the authority. He wouldn't share details of the board's discussions regarding the hire, but I did ask him, you know, this is a contentious issue. Did you ask these candidates what their stance may be on Mauna Kea or how they would approach this or that issue? Here's Komeji. We talked about what their relationship was with the Mauna, less about, you know, because they're coming in sort of brand new to this too, and it's a very, very complicated issue. And I, for one, am continuing to learn on a daily basis about all these different perspectives and some of the concerns, et cetera. Um, so we didn't ask specifically about how you would handle it. Although I would tell you that all of them kind of mirrors what I think too, is that increasing communication by and among different segments of the population in terms of how we approach any problem, but specifically as it relates to Monica too, is something that has come out loud and clear. Chair Komeji says what the authority is doing right now is essentially building capacity, right? Getting staffing in there. Much of the authority's progress up until now has been made with little to no staffing. They made one hire a couple of months ago. And Komeji says they're also recruiting for two other positions, an administrative services officer and a program director. And then we've got DeFreeze. So the executive director would essentially begin to hire his staff and really just start executing the authority's work, which up until now has been done in these board committees. Here's uh, Chair Komeji explaining. We've created a committee that is working with the University of Hawaii to evaluate all of the assets that need to be transferred. And so we have one committee doing that. We have a separate committee that is trying to understand how the University of Hawaii put together its master plan and looking forward, how are we going to put together our master plan for the MANA? And the last thing, and very importantly, we're trying to get out into the community. We feel like we're at a point now where we can go out to the community and 
speaks primarily about how we're standing up the organization and what we're doing. You know, we've not reached the point where we're able to take testimony about some of the more um, highly charged issues like uh, astronomy, et cetera. We're not at that point yet. Yeah, I mean, that's going to be a big point, right, Right, with TMT and, yeah. Exactly. The future of Mauna Kea, right now it's sort of just getting the foundation of this new government entity up and running, and the new executive director uh, will essentially be that public face for the authority going out into the community because we do know there are still Mauna Kea stakeholders who do not support the authority for various reasons. The Office of Wine Affairs coming out um, with a lawsuit, of course, wanting to take care of some some historic business, making sure uh, the landowners and managers like UH and the Board of Land and Natural Resources are held accountable for mismanagement prior to the authority. And of course, we've got some in the legislature pushing back and trying to push through legislation that um, kind of tweaks some of what the authority is going to. Right now, there's a bill going through, we reported on last week, that looks to exempt the authority from the open meetings or sunshine law because they're just so hampered in trying to get things off the ground that they say if they are able to meet outside of the regular monthly meetings, they can get more done. And that Hmm. bill actually advanced, interestingly enough. So people are making tweaks to what the authority is going through as they try to build themselves up. So there's a lot of community work uh, that is going to have to be done as the authority takes over management of the mountain. And and that's on top of the kuleana of literally transitioning, right, as Komeji mentioned, figuring out what's going to move over and how it's going to move over to this authority. Here's Komeji. One of the reasons why I'm doing this, uh, I don't like where Hawaii's going <laughs> in terms of the divisiveness and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. Is there a Hawaii way that we can deal with very contentious issues like Mauna Kea and, and, and have a different process? And that's, that's the beauty of what we have on the authority, right? People that don't didn't have a voice are now put in decision-making position, right. and yeah. they have a vote. And maybe yeah. this is one way that we can figure out how we move forward. Yeah. So Komeji says the authority has scheduled a community talk story session for next month, March 13th at 6 p.m. at that DLNR DOFA office in Hilo. Um, and that, if DeFries is approved by the board, he will be there. Uh, interesting. I mean, I, I know I've seen comments from the public, you know, uh, weighing in, you know, because the story has been out, you know, uh, buzzing around in the community. Yeah. Uh, and some folks say, well, you know, DeFries, they, they consider him a sellout, uh, you know, because of the his background with the tourism industry. So they're a little right. kind of suspicious about what the uh, motives are and, and if that's going to mean, you know, you kind of open the doors for all kinds of stuff on the mountain, but, you know, I don't know. Right. It, it, that, that, it, but that is a feeling out there. Differs, yeah, 40 years uh, in the tourism and resort development uh, industry, most recently head of HTA, but also the Native uh, Hawaiian Hospitality Association. So, uh, yes, it, entirely uh, in that world. Uh, but I, I think, you know, when you look at the makeup of this authority, the idea that it was supposed to be this all stakeholders of Mauna Kea coming to the table to have this conversation. You've got 
um, Rich Matsuda uh, from Mauna Kea Observatories on that board. You've got UH at the table, BLNR. You've got a uh, majority Native Hawaiians, uh, Kamana Beamer, professor up at UH, and uh, educator Kalehua Krug. And so if you think about those making the decision to bring uh, someone like John DeFrizan, Native Hawaiian leader as well, um, I think that makes sense when you think about the makeup. He's kind of seen as a, a middleman, right? Mm-hmm. Like he, he's even keeled. He will listen and he's got the leadership experience to really do something that hasn't been done in a long time in Hawaii to stand up a government entity. But we will see once he, you know, once everything gets uh, in there, we'll have more uh, interface with the community. And I think that's when the hard work is going to get started. Yeah. And then do we know how that OHA uh, legal challenge may affect uh, this going forward? Uh, not at this point. It seems to be going sort of working parallel or progressing, right? The, the authority is still moving forward despite these uh, sort of legal challenges and uh, same thing with uh, TMT, for example. They're still moving forward. Nothing's made, you know, no one's made any decisions. Everyone is sort of waiting to see how this authority plays out. And, and I think this next step of having someone paid staff to do the work uh, will make a difference. Yeah, I mean, you've got to get the infrastructure in, right, stand up the office, uh, so you have that framework going forward to deal with all these potentially contentious <laughs> issues. But, you know, I guess when you, th- if you think back of where we were before COVID, that maybe it was good that we pause this, everybody take a deep breath, exhale, uh, and hopefully, you know, they can find common ground on this issue. Yeah, and if anybody, uh, the authority has been saying they don't get a lot of uh, the public coming into their to their meetings every month, but they do meet meet every month. I've been watching these meetings, and it's it is very. Um, Inspiring and hopeful to see everyone, stakeholders who for a really long time may have been on opposite ends of the spectrum on this issue of what we want to do with Mauna Kea, but all sort of having this uh, guiding principle of uh, what's good for the Mauna and whatever is good for the Mauna is going to be good for the community. But I'd encourage anyone who's interested to kind of see what are they doing? What are they up to? Tune into one of these meetings, and if you have a chance, head over to that uh, Community Talk Story next week. Yes, engage. All right. (laughs) Mahalo. Well, thank you so much for uh, tracking this and your coverage uh, on these Hawaiian issues. Mahalo. We've been talking with HPR's Huve Hirishi. Look for her stories on hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for HPR comes from UH Presents, featuring Russian classical pianist Anna Ginyushine, performing March 3rd at UH Manoa Orvis Auditorium. Tickets at outreach.hawaii.edu events. Recently on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, Hari Kondabolu offered everyone a way to make a little extra cash. I'd pay $6 a finger. I'm Peter Sagal. You need not sacrifice any extremities to enjoy this week's show from Austin, Texas with rapper Danny Brown. Join us for a show with all of its fingers and toes. That's Wait, Wait from NPR. Beginning Saturday morning at 11.
think of cancer treatments, and you may automatically think of chemotherapy, radiation, or surgery, but there's also something now available here in Hawaii called CAR-T therapy or immunotherapy. It involves extracting, supercharging, and re-injecting your own white blood cells. Last May, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration approved the treatment for use in some blood cancers. Pediatric and adult patients can now be treated through a program offered through the University of Hawaii Cancer Center and Hawaii Pacific Health. Dr. Stephanie C. Lim is with Kapi'olani Medical Center for Women and Children. She talked to us recently about the success of clinical trials recently launched. So CAR-T therapy, it stands for chimeric antigen receptor T-cell therapy. And it's and honestly, it's really cool and super exciting. It is a special type of treatment where we can use what we call a viral vector to deliver a gene that codes a specific receptor into the patient's own immune cells, which in this case is CAR T-cells, so it's T-cells, so that it can then recognize a very specific marker on the cancer cells. And a lot of actually people don't know this, but, you know, we talk about how novel and how new it is. And the first FDA approval came in 2017, but CAR T-cells itself has actually been studied for over 30 years. But we're actually doing it here in Hawaii on Oahu. Yeah, we are. And it's such a blessing to be able to bring this very innovative therapy to our medical community because not only is it life-changing for a lot of the patients because the current indication right now is for treatment of blood cancers that is relapsed refractory. So patients who have had, you know, failed one, two, not even three lines of prior therapy, whether that be surgeries, radiation, chemotherapy, and then they get CAR T-cells and they're actually cured from their cancer. So it, it's a big deal for us to be able to offer it to our patients here. And there was one patient that recently got this treatment. So tell us about this, the success so far. Yeah, definitely. So I can tell you a little bit about the program kind of that we've built here in Hawaii Pacific Health because it really took a village for us to bring this type of therapy here. And so it probably started about two, two and a half years ago, and it really utilized and mobilized every department within Hawaii Pacific Health. Everybody came together because they recognized that this is such a good cause. And so it took us about two, two and a half years to really get all the pieces moving together. And that includes, you know, our apheresis department, which um, I can talk to you a little bit about later, too. But, you know, the process of actually making CAR T-cells is very different from ordering a drug from a pharmaceutical company. It requires just tons of moving pieces. So apheresis department is huge. We have a cell lab that helps kind of package and ship out the cells and then get the cells back. We then, of course, have our clinical team, right, not just the physicians, which, of course, are super important, but you get the nurses, the social workers, the case managers, and then you get the operational side of things, too, like the finance billings and IT departments, right? So everybody came together in order to really be able to implement and deliver the system. And so we treated our first patient in August of 2023, so about almost six months ago now, and so far we have treated three patients in total, two adults and one pediatric patient. And our first patient is like the best. She she really was is the sweetest patient that you can ever ask for. You know, she's from here. She's local on Oahu, and she actually was treated for her cancer for about a year and a half. And at one point, was actually referred to the mainland 
for CAR T therapy, but unfortunately, she was actually the primary caretaker for her husband, whom at that time had end stage cancer. And so, mm. because she was a primary caretaker, couldn't leave the island to get her CAR T therapy, and so I had to stay here. But we got a little bit more treatment for her, and then luckily, when her cancer came back, we just had onboarded our first. CAR-T product, and so she became our first patient to get it in August. And she's doing well. And she's doing well. She's cancer-free so far, living a good life. Wow. I mean, that's amazing. I mean, because it it's a treatment that hadn't been tried before, and it's showing success. Yes, exactly. I mean, clinical trials, data over the years have just shown such good results for this type of therapy that yeah, it really is very exciting to be able to offer it here. And then particularly, too, for, for children who come down with these types of cancers, if you can offer them, you know, something that's that's not so, you know, aggressive, maybe is chemo. I don't know. How would you phrase that? Yeah. So where I, I did all my training on the East Coast. So all my residency and fellowship training for pediatric oncology was actually done at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. And they were the pioneers of CAR-T therapy. And so they, they actually treated the first ever pediatric patient in the world with CAR-T therapy. And so I can tell you a story about her. And, and she is really the poster child of CAR-T therapy. And her name was Emily Whitehead. And she was 12 at that time when she was treated with her refractory B-cell acute leukemia. She was very sick, of course. I mean, she had cancer multiple times and just would not go away with chemotherapy. And so she ended up enrolling on this, at that time, a very brand new and novel clinical trial with CAR T cells. And so she became the first patient in the world to get it. I think that was in April 2012 now at this point. And so she was very sick and, you know, she got the side effects of what we now know as cytokine release syndrome. And through a lot of research, we actually know how to treat this very well now on the side effects of CAR T therapy. And so she got through that with a very special type of medicine. And then now she is almost 12 years now cancer-free. I think the last I heard was that she's taking the SATs for college. And yeah, so it's just, it's life-changing. Yeah, you've given her life back. Yeah. I mean, in, in a case where otherwise we would have just been able to offer her palliative and kind of hospice care, right? Because there would have been nothing else that we could have offered her. So tell us about the clinical trials then that are available now. So this field is exploding. I mean, CAR-T therapy itself as a field probably has over 1,000 clinical trials available around the world for different types of cancer. So currently there is six FDA-approved products right now that are all treating blood cancers, so lymphoma, leukemia, multiple myeloma, etc. And so really the clinical trials that's available out there is for the different types of cancer, so specifically like breast cancer, lung cancer, kind of all different types, so that hopefully one day we can get FDA approval for different indications as well. And so how does one join these clinical trials if you're under care here. Yeah, that's a really good question. You know, and one of our main goals in building our cell therapy program is to be able to increase our portfolio to not just be able to offer commercial products, commercial CAR-T products, but also clinical trials as well. And so we will, you know, talk it over with our clinical team and decide which trials are best to be offered here and then open them. So if anybody has any questions about CAR-T clinical trials, then feel free to reach out to our oncology team here at Hawaii Pacific Health, and then we'll connect you either to myself or another physician that will be able to provide the information for you guys. And then how do we build on this here as far as like another 
area in the healthcare field that has potential where uh, people can come here for treatment for yeah. these options? This is just the first step. To be able to offer this clinically, just CAR-T therapy itself, is a big, big first step. But there are still many things that we can do to continue to offer the best therapy that we can to our patients here, right? So CAR-T therapy is only kind of one small aspect of kind of what's out there now. We hear a lot on the news about gene therapy, right? That's kind of something that's kind of up and coming, I would say. And then also, aside from just clinically, too, is building our research program infrastructure, too, so that we can continue to learn from each other. You know, one of the best things about Hawaii is that we have what we call a majority and minority population, meaning that our population is comprised of just multi-ethnic populations, right? You need Hawaiians, a lot of Asians, which is just super helpful in terms of understanding how different drugs work on different race and ethnicity. And so if we can build up our research database and infrastructure, then we can all kind of learn from each other, both nationally and internationally. So that's going to be kind of our next goal. Yeah, I mean, I'm just trying to think, what do we need to do to support this type of research so we can grow it? You know, I think just being able to ask the right questions, because I think it's still a lot of people are hesitant about um, enrolling in clinical trials because, you know, they worry like, oh, am I going to get kind of a worse therapy, right, than standard of care or what's going to happen to me? They're going to do so many things to me. I think asking the right questions to your providers to better understand what the point of the clinical trial is and kind of trust in a way that it really is to advance science because we really wouldn't be here to have CAR-T therapy available if it wasn't for a clinical trial. I mentioned in the beginning that, you know, this therapy has been around for 30 years and the reason why it's taking so long is because really through rigorous testing on everything like humans and of course animals and everything to get to where we are to make sure that this is safe and tolerated for patients. And so I think just getting a better understanding of clinical trials and then just support in general would be good to help our program. Well, I just think of the whole gene editing with Jennifer Doudna and all the amazing research that, you know, someone from Hawaii played a hand in this. And, And when you think of the potential and the good that it can do, there's more that we can do to help support this type of therapy. It's like, why not? And how can we support it so it can grow? Yes. Yeah, I mean, it's Jennifer Dugner is like a celebrity, of course, right? Yes, with rock star <laughs> in, the, in the medical but, world. Yeah, she is amazing, and she's super smart, and she is from Hawaii. And um, I think that's really cool. And their most recent gene editing kind of exciting news is to cure sickle cell disease, which is something that we don't really yes. see in our population. But the fact that we use her system, the CRISPR-Cas9, to edit the cells to then cure sickle cell, I mean, that that is... That's huge, too. Yes. Well, it's just fascinating that we're doing, you know, this work here and we're helping patients, you know, that maybe did not have other options and we're giving them a second chance. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, patients don't have to leave home now, right, to get something that we can offer here. And it's it's a lot. I mean, it's just like our first patient that that we just spoke about, right? I mean, she couldn't leave because her husband was sick. But other people, their support system is here. I mean, why wouldn't you want to be at home with your close family and friends and your ohana to to just get through a already very difficult time, right? And on top of that, financially, too, is, is very draining for a lot of families. And so, you know, we get a lot of inquiries, not just from, of course, the local communities, but people who actually 
got their cells collected on the mainland who now heard about our program and so was like, hey, can I just get myself, you know, transfused back home in Hawaii? And we're like, of course. Well, that's terrific. So we are grateful for the work that you do and uh, the fact that this is now an option for people out here in the Pacific. But thank you. Yeah, definitely. And that was Dr. Stephanie C. Lim, who is working with Hawaii Pacific Health and the UH Cancer Center on offering CAR T-cell therapy. Uh, There are products that are approved for adults and children that offer a glimmer of hope for treatments of certain blood cancers like lymphoma or leukemia. Look for links to find out more on the conversation page of our website later today. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hello, I'm Marguerite Calloway, director of the Calloway Leadership Institute. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about cultivating your innate leadership potential. Sunday morning at 11. Support for HPR comes from Ruby Tuesday Hawaii, with locations in Moanalua and Kaneohe, offering dine-in and take-out daily and catering, available for business meetings and events. RubyTuesdayHawaii.com Word of the Day has been a staple on Hawaii Public Radio for 30 years. You hear it every day. Host Leilani Poliahu introduces a new Hawaiian word, explains what it means, spells it, and models it the correct pronunciation. Here's today's word. Aloha. Poeko, spelled P-O-E-K-O, means fluent. There are not many people who are truly poeko in the Hawaiian language, but the number is increasing. You don't have to be Hawaiian to be poeko in Hawaiian, and you don't have to be a native speaker. Many who are poeko have learned Hawaiian as a second language. For Hawaii Public Radio, I'm Leilani Puliahu. Ahui ho! And that popular series was started by Puliahu and local musician Keith Hagen, to encourage the use of the Hawaiian language, or Olelo Hawaii, in everyday conversation. Today is the last day of Mahina Olelo Hawaii, or Hawaiian Language Month, so we are resharing an interview between HPR reporter Savannah Harriman-Pote and Poliahu that dates back to April 2022. They were joined by Hawaii Kula'ibi host Paige Okamura to talk about the Hawaiian word of the day and how fluency in Olelo Hawaii impacts everyday life. I think one of the initial goals of the word of the day was to help people learn correct pronunciation of certain words, um, certain words that maybe get commonly mispronounced in daily conversations, such as place names. So I I know one um, one such word was lihue, which is the place on Kauai. The person who wrote all of the words, I was just a voice. The person who wrote them was Keith Haugen, and he specifically chose words that he thought 
would benefit the general public. So hopefully nobody, um, once they hear that, will mispronounce Lihue again. <laughs> yeah, for your average listener, it's like a nice doorway for them to sort of understand either a word that they've heard before or to find a new word. I do see a lot of folks always replying to our social media with mahalo. So I always feel like they've learned one more word outside of mahalo, which is, it's it's nice. It's a good way to sort of be that first step for some people. I think that that pronunciation is a critical component because even if you see a word over and over written down, if you're not familiar with the sound of that word, you can't really bring it into your everyday. Paige, I want to step back for a moment, and I want to ask what your experience has been with Olelo Hawaii, both personally, but also in scholarship and in study. Like most Hawaiian people my age, adults, oh, I'm an adult now, that's right. Um, We, you know, I grew up in a Hawaiian household that used Hawaiian words, but I also still grew up in a household where my grandparents prioritized English, you know, over Hawaiian. So we had certain words and phrases all my life, but really nobody spoke the language fluently in our household. So I think for us, we lost the language in two generations. So quite quickly, I started taking Hawaiian in high school and then into college, and now I have a degree in Hawaiian language. And so my fluency has increased, but so has my understanding not just of the language, but of the world, you know, of our world, of a Hawaiian worldview. And um, when I was in college, I worked for Pukea Nogelmeyer for probably like six years, which is a long time when you're in college. (laughs) Uh, But from my undergrad into my graduate studies, so I'm doing my master's in Olalo Hawaii. We've really kind of come full circle because Really, our children today can learn in Hawaiian from the time they're born, preschool, all the way through a PhD program. So that wasn't really an option for my parents, but I've also seen it really change the landscape of the community as well. You know, because you're moving from a certain level of surface fluency to really being able to dig into not just the language and what the words mean, but what it means to be Hawaiian, you know, and really digging into our history. Mm. And Leilani, what has your relationship been to the language? Where did you start? I actually didn't start till I was at um, UH Manoa. And it was just this amazing thing that happened in my life. And I just wanted to do it for the rest of my life. So <laughs> that's why I went in education and became a teacher in the Hawaiian Immersion Program. So that's where I've been the last 20, 20 somewhat years. And to see the growth from where the language was back then, to see where it is now and how it's everywhere. And so so many more people are learning the language and so many more opportunities and um, things are available in Hawaiian. We've talked about the merits of, of giving people just vocabulary on the day-to-day that they, as Paige said, can have just one more word that they know in Hawaiian. But as two people who speak Olelo Hawaii and have studied and taught Olelo Hawaii, 
What do you gain when you go beyond vocabulary? Well, vocabulary is important. It's the building blocks that you can build sentences with, but the Olelo gives you a different thought, even a different thought process, like the importance that the culture places on certain items are evident in the language, or the not importance of the self, because a lot of Hawaiian sentence structures are passive, meaning they don't even tell you who the actor was, whereas in English, the actor is always the first thing in the sentence, I did it. It just kind of changes your worldview and helps you understand the way that Hawaiians thought. And I think it's it's critical to learn the language if you're going to understand understand the way that Hawaiians thought. And I think it's really important for for our Hawaiian people to learn, but not just Hawaiian people, everyone can learn it because they live here and just to to live here and as Aaron Salah says, if you breathe Hawaiian air, <laughs> you, you, you're breathing in the mana of this place, and the language is all part of that. Yeah, and I think you know it's important that we don't get that we don't get stuck, right? We if we give people Hawaiian word of the day, but it's the same because the Hawaiian language community has grown exponentially. They've noticed. I've seen people say, "I've heard this word before." Do you have, is this, what, what's going on here? <laughs> we have access to so many more resources, so why aren't we using them? Because really what happens and what you want out of people is maybe they hear a word on Hawaiian Word of the Day and they're interested and maybe they learn a little more, a little more. But really what happens is once you've reached a certain level of, you know, kind of functional fluency, but even a little more than that, you're able to access a narrative that we as a people have not been able to access on our own for generations due to language demise. So we've only been used to the narrative that's been fed to us, that's been given to us in someone else's language. But once you're able to really see our history as a people in our own language as told, written, by our own people, that's a whole different world. And it really changes the way you perceive everything. You don't even wake up in the morning the same way. You know, you can't because now you know things that you'll never be able to forget. And Leilani's right. We want you to see Hawaii the way that the language tells you, which actually has so much more depth than English does. So. Really, the importance for us to expand that resource at Hawaii Public Radio is in hopes of encouraging that because it's easy, I think, we've been used to folks telling us, oh, you don't need it. But once you learn enough about Hawaii's history from that primary source, it changes everything you look at. The political landscape here completely shifts for you because now you're able to understand history as it was for Hawaiians, not just as it was for, you know, the colonizer to tell you what your history was. You can tell them what your history was. You both came to the Hawaiian language in a fuller way in an academic setting, and you both still utilize it in an academic setting. I'm curious where else 
gains have been made in terms of Alelo Hawaii that really excite you? What other places the language is being used that make you think, okay, this is bringing the language into a really practical everyday use? That's That's been our goal from the beginning is like, um, well, I mean, sorry, I wasn't there in the beginning, beginning, <laughs> but like, that's been our goal is to have the language everywhere. Um, with the immersion program, we don't want to raise just teachers. We want people that speak Hawaiian in all the industries, doctors, lawyers, ev- everywhere. And I think we've we've kind of made a lot of progress in that. Um, we have pilots, we have people in the, the movie industry, the TV industry, and just getting uh, um, Olelo Hawaii out there into the media. And and it's not just what you do in the industries, it's in your home. That's that's one of our uh, other goals is to have Olelo Hawaii in the homes of people, have people raising their keiki in Olelo Hawaii. Yeah, and I, th- I think we are seeing that come to fruition. That was Hawaiian Word of the Day host Leilani Poliahu and HPR Hawaiian music host Paige Okamura talking to HPR Savannah Harriman Poe. The 32nd uh, segment officially turns 30 years old this July. Support for HPR comes from TS Restaurants and its Legacy of Aloha Foundation, supporting the Maui community and assisting those affected by the wildfires. More about how to help by searching tsrestaurants.com Legacy of Aloha. Today on The Daily, a Times investigation has revealed how applesauce laced with high levels of lead, which poisoned hundreds of children across the U.S., sailed through a food safety system meant to protect American consumers. I'm Michael Barbaro. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Beginning this afternoon at 1.30. Support for HPR comes from Stanford Medicine Cancer Center, providing a circle of care approach designed to cultivate resilience for the whole person. Video and in-person appointments are available, stanfordhealthcare.org slash cancer center. This month, we told you about a podcast challenge that NPR was offering for middle and high schoolers. We wondered about what young ears were listening to out there, and we came across something that we wanted to share with you. Does this song live in your memory bank? When I was just a little girl, I asked my mother, what will I be? Will I be pretty? Will I be rich? Here's what she said to me. Que sera, sera. Whatever will be, will be. The future's not ours to see. Que sera, 
said I What will be, will be What will be, will be Fate, destiny, well, 10-year-old Ava too wonders what she'll be when she grows up But she isn't leaving anything to chance. She started a podcast called Curious Careers. Episode one was about laymaking. It was two minutes long. Her most recent one was about a career that wasn't even invented when I was a kid, but it exists now, and that is this new world of augmented reality. Take a listen to this clip from episode five of Curious Careers. What is augmented reality itself? I'm going to tell you what I think, because that's a lot of people have a lot of interpretations of augmented reality. So I'll tell you how I understand it. Augmented reality is me seeing the world with my own eyes and having something literally augmented on top of it, meaning it's enhanced, right? So maybe I'm, let's, I'm going to pretend my glasses are smarter than they actually are. They're not. So let's say I put a pair of glasses on and now something about my glasses is helping make the real world even better for me. Maybe they're helping me see like the chair that's in front of me is actually much more interesting because there's a character sitting on my chair, right? Or it just makes the real world much more interactive, much more interesting in a ton of different ways. You could be playing games that are in your living room, like your characters are climbing up your furniture. (laughs) Or you could be actually playing a lot of music that I'm using speakers in and I could just hear it in different ways in my room. Maybe it's helping me see better. Just something as simple as that, right? I have, you know, really bad vision. Maybe I need to like hyper zoom on something like I'm a superhero and I have powers and I can see far away. Like that type of thing would be augmented reality. It's like making things, enhancing the world, even though it's already cool. Yeah. And and just to give you the contrast, I know a lot of people know what virtual reality is. Uh Virtual reality you're actually not using your own eyes to see things in front of you. In this case, you'll see usually people put on a headset and the headset might have cameras, but really it's all synthetic. It's all kind of created. So even the world in front of you isn't your real world. It's something that's been made for you to see in a different way, either through cameras or through some other way. So virtual reality, you can play with faking the world a lot better. Whereas in AR, you're really leaving the real world alone, adding things on top of it. Yeah, because sometimes I play on my dad's AR set. And it's, it's not like fully set up, but I can sometimes in like the homeroom, it, it, I can, it, the cameras come out and the world is like black and white. It's like the same room that I'm in. Or I can be in this other complete room with like a lake and stuff. Yeah. Right. And I ran into a wall virtually. <laughs> yeah, you gotta be careful of the walls. <laughs> Interesting. We got a chance to talk to Ava and her mom, Sarah, about the Curious Careers podcast last week. Here's part of that conversation. Do you listen to a lot of podcasts? How did you get on this idea? Well, it was mostly I wanted to, I think it would be neat to share other careers with other kids. And I was thinking maybe I could do a website where you tap on a link and it's like, oh, this job, you do this and maybe a little bit of them talking. But then I thought it'd be a lot easier just to do a podcast. And maybe some of that inspiration came from some of the podcasts I listen to. And they're all kinds of maybe educational podcasts, like the moment of, um, there's these kids who ask questions, and it's pretty fun, and then the host will answer it. And then there's Forever Ago, which is about history and different things. And I really, like, enjoy that. And then there's Brains On, and that's just more science and math and cool stuff like that. 
Well, of the people that you've interviewed, I mean, like list off, you know, the types of jobs that you've learned about. Well, a lot of these I didn't really know about, which is really interesting. Like, I like the AR one and the and Wesley, the guy who studied the ocean. I never knew about that. I thought it was just a bunch of people who took photos in the ocean. <laughs> yeah, those are probably my top two. And so, Mom, jump in here. <laughs> Sarah, uh, what have you seen as Ava's gotten more involved and interested in these different fields out there? Oh, I think it's really fun to see my daughter be able to process what people do for a living and then give her own interpretation of how she absorbs what they do. So we do something for homeschooling called narration where you tell back what you hear. And so what she collects after she hears about what a person does is is just like from the brain of a child. It's just different how how to interpret it. But I, I love that when people explain what they do as a career to a child, they try to make it even more simplified and in layman's terms. And there are times where I'm, I have to listen to the podcast three times and I'm still absorbing new things from it. But she she's really collected a lot of different ideas in terms of what people do for a career and how do they get to that career. And then they she hears about different facets of their life, like their hobbies. So those are things that I feel like sometimes people don't really share that when they're adults to other adults. But when you're with a child, there's less guards to put up in some ways. So that's been the fun adventure. And I've always loved hearing what people do because it's just everyone's just this walking science experiment and they're just fascinating to me. And so it's fun to see Ava take on that amazement and fascination with other people too. She usually comes up with the idea of who she wants to interview. So that's been fun. Well, I didn't know what I wanted to be when I was a kid. I don't know. Did you? I didn't, but I remember interviewing Nadine Cam from, I think it was mm-hmm. the little advertiser, and she wrote back and told me more about her career, and that was in the fifth grade. But I wanted to be an architect. What did you want to be? I wanted to go off and join the circus. <laughs> <laughs> and they have circus classes in, in this area. So I'm curious yes. if you ever did anything towards that. No. The furthest I got was, you know, enjoying Cirque du Soleil, but that's okay. <laughs> oh, yeah. That is a high-powered circus. Yeah. yeah. And so, Ava, gosh, as you learn about putting together a podcast, what's the hardest thing you think about doing this? Thinking of questions, creative questions and good questions. Sometimes I just blank out, but it really helps if my interviewee send me like a quick bio so I can read through it and try to spit out some questions. Doing the research and finding out what the field is all about and how best to get the information um, from the person you're interviewing. And what's the most fun part of putting a podcast together? I love meeting all these new people and, like, their hobbies outside of work. For example, Mike Sego, he's now a stay-at-home dad, but he really likes to run, and he ran the New York Marathon, and I got to see some of his updates on how he ran with a friend, too. And as far as editing, as far as editing a podcast, what have you learned about that process? Well, I haven't gotten that, like, high up in the spectrum, but we have we've gotten a company to do all the editing, and it's turned out really well. We found someone to help us go through, but the person doesn't really cut that much out of it. So it's basically just posting it and maybe taking out some filler words. But that's one of our goals this summer, just really how to get into the granular technical aspects of the editing. So to be honest, we don't really do heavy editing on our interviews. So maybe they could be a little bit shorter and cleaned up. 
but that's one area I think that we both want to learn more about. I've tried it a little bit, but with teaching my four kids and running a household, I just, I can't always get to it. So someone helps us post it up to Spotify and that's about it. You're homeschooling your children and that's a lot of work. So I have to hand it to you (laughs) that you've taken this on and that Ava has hit on something that she can really learn from. I hope so. I, my, my hope is that they'll continue to always be curious and that they'll be pretty motivated in their learning and self-learning. It's been a good adventure. I'm, I'm only formally homeschooling two kids and the other two are three and five-year-olds and they just come with us on our adventures and they come in and out of our lessons. So we're still, every year is different. So we're always learning together. I'm getting at it multiple school experiences again, all over again. <laughs> well, uh, Ava, I don't know. Do you have an idea as to what you want to do when you grow up? No. Sometimes, like, I have a lot of pen pals, and sometimes they'll ask what I want to be, and I have, like, I have no idea. I just like to try different things and see if I like it or not. Yeah. Well, that's how you learn. That's how you learn. Anything else you just want to share about the process? And I don't know, do your friends listen to the podcast? Yeah, my pen pals and my Swiss friends will be like, I like your podcast. I'm like, wow, thank you. And so uh, uh, when you uh, come back here to Hawaii, then you, you seek out people to interview? Sometimes, but it's a lot of vacation for me, and I get to be with my mom's family, which is fun. Okay. Anything else, Mom, that you think would be helpful for other kids or parents or grandparents out there who might want to get their children into doing things just to help boost their creativity and their, mm-hmm. their curiosity? Oh, that's a good question. I I would really grab hold onto the questions and the ideas that they have. I, I feel like they're walking idea invent- inventors, and they're constantly thinking of ideas of things to create. For example, my son wants to assemble and organize people's Lego sets at their homes and be deployed and be like a consultant for them. And he's seven, and he also thinks that we should have like a a business where you can take recycled plastic from the beaches. I mean, the beaches, that garbage that gets washed up and melted and make Legos out of that. So I think they're always coming up with ideas for amazing projects. And often we forget about it. So I keep like a Google document of just their ideas because at some point maybe we'll come back to that. Um, And I have a mentor that says you will always have a lot of ideas. So put it in your idea box and pull it out when you have the time to do that. So I just hope that they know what it's like to start something and finish something. Yeah. Um, and just I get to have fun with them on the, on the journey. And then I'll give you the last word, Ava. Anything else you want to say just about podcasting and the, the curious careers that you've come across? No, but it's a lot of fun. And just do what you what you want to do. It doesn't have to be podcasting. It can be whatever you do. Just dive deep into it and learn a lot. Yeah, and have fun along the way for sure. Yeah. <laughs> That was 10-year-old Ava, too, and her mother, Sarah. Ava and her family live in the Bay Area, but they come to Hawaii to visit uh, grandparents often. We enjoyed hearing from her and her mom, and we hope you did, too. does it for us today. Up tomorrow, we're planning a call-in show for you on in vitro fertilization. Give us some feedback. 
What are your experiences with uh, IVF in Hawaii? What do you think about the controversy in Alabama? Do you agree that a frozen embryo is a child? Call or talk back line at 808-792-8217 or email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.